They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 93 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host, uh, our guest today is a friend of mine, and he's also my regional rep uh, for the Libertarian Party uh, on the Libertarian National Committee. He represents Tennessee, whereas you know I'm from, as well as Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And we talked about his new role as uh, a regional rep on the 17-member LNC back on episode 80 of Decentralized Revolution back in June. And you can uh, find that and find links uh, associated with that at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 80. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Dave Benner. And when he was on that episode, we talked about a project he was working on, uh, which was also a project I was working on because I helped him edit it. Um, and we talk about that. And I just wanted everybody to know that uh, I did have a, a small part in this book. Uh, but also to tell you how much I love this book, he, it's just out, it's called Thomas Paine, a lifetime of radicalism. And it is a full fledged, uh, really well-researched, uh, well-written biography of Thomas Paine, who is, you know, he's unique among the founders in that, uh, for, for so many reasons. And he's one of my favorites, uh, partly because he was such a great writer and partly because he had a lot of uh, courage and I didn't know how much courage uh, uh, Thomas Paine really had uh, until I read this book. I had read a lot by Thomas Paine and, and some about him, but I learned a whole lot from this book and he's someone that uh, we libertarians can really take um, uh, a page out of his book uh, today in uh, trying to uh, be bold, uh, be concise, connect with average people over the themes of liberty. You can get this book, which I'm sure you'll want to do by going to DaveBenner.com. Dave, uh, just like Dave Smith and Benner, B-E-N-N-E-R, DaveBenner.com. And uh, I know you're going to enjoy our talk about this great book. Hey, Dave, we've talked about this book a lot, but it's just been uh, you and me. Um, so now everyone gets to uh, 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 to hear uh, about this book. So full disclaimer up front, I helped Dave edit the book. Um, he did a great job and it was a pretty clean uh, uh, copy uh, to, to edit. And so it was a pleasure working on this. I've read it twice, so I can recommend it. So 
with that out of the way, knowing that I profited just a little bit from this, uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about why you should read this book. So how does it feel to ha finally have it done? Oh, man, so relieving to have it done after four years. And you did a great job. You did. Uh, you didn't. You gave me way too much credit because I did not give you a perfect copy, but uh, I really appreciated your help. But it feels great. It's glad. It's, it's just very exciting to get this content out there after so long. I guess. Yeah, and I didn't say perfect. I said good. So compared to a lot of stuff <laughs> I see, it was really good. Um, and, and that's kind of one thing I wanted to get into um, is kind of where your your skill set comes from. So I recently. Um, uh, listen to uh, Dangerous History, History podcast, CJ Kilmer, mm. and he did an episode on like what he calls court historians. So like, uh, which would have been the uh, the modern day equivalent of the the guys who would have hung around the king's court back in the day and written nice things about him. And uh, one of the guys in this episode that uh, uh, CJ talked about was Michael Beschloss. And all my life, uh, this guy has been coming on TV telling me you know, why Bill Clinton is great and why Obama's great and why Joe Biden's great. And, uh, so all this stuff. And I just assumed he was like a, um, uh, a historian. And so we can debate that term, but the, it turns out the guy doesn't have a degree in history. He's got some degree in something, but has kind of just done the work and published books and he's, you know, he's in all the right clubs. And so, uh, Talk about, and I'm one of these guys, like, I don't think credentials matter, but like, you know, the blue check mark crowd, which that may be changing soon, what, what we mean by blue check mark, but a lot of people, uh, especially in the regime, the cathedral, so to speak, uh, they really value credentials and, oh, well, he's not a historian or he's not an economist. So I think that if you can do the work, it doesn't matter whether you got the piece of paper. So, and I don't know if I've ever talked to you about your, um, academic background if any and how you how you got into becoming what i based on this book is a is a, and some articles i've read of yours is a good historian so tell, tell us about that yeah well i have a bachelor's in history education of course i've never been a professional historian per se i, I consider myself an amateur historian now i work in a different field um, but as far as that topic it is an interesting one and what's ironic about that to me and you're right about the legacy media that's are, that that's absolutely what the legacy publishing industry is like. Um, but it's ironic to me because many of the most uh, kind of prominent people that write biographies and history works are actually journalists and not historians um, by credentials. So if you're talking about like a PhD in history, many of the prominent authors don't have that. Many of them have journalist backgrounds. So um, I'm what, I would call a revisionist historian. And that term can uh, make people squeamish because they could liken it to like a Stalinist, you know, re-education camp or something like that. But what I mean by that is I like to go back and to see um, historical narratives and historiographies that I think get it wrong to some extent. That's what I did with pain. And uh, that's what Dice blurbed about my book is that I gave this subject the same treatment that Murray and Rothbard did in his revisionist history accounts, like conceived in Liberty. Right. I, I think uh, I just listened and I'll have this up on the show notes page too. Uh, actually I'm in the middle of listening to it. Uh, Tom Woods, Thomas DiLorenzo and Ryan McMacken uh, uh, replayed a, a talk from, I think a recent Mises event is replaying on Tom's podcast and Tom 
and Ryan started off talking about uh, uh, exactly that, what we mean by revisionist history. And I'll also put a link to, to Ralph Rako. So if you're a libertarian or if you're interested in history at all, and you have not read Ralph Rako, you are in for a treat. And he's got a lot of great lectures. I think they're, I hope they're still up on YouTube. Um, and basically what that is, is, and again, I'm stealing from Tom because it's, I literally listened to it 90 minutes ago, but, <laughs> you know, think about what is in the headlines and how the headlines, especially with the, you know, the corporate legacy media, whatever you want to call them, uh, especially now they write the headlines cause they know that most people only read those. So basically without revisionism, to some extent, history is basically whatever was in the newspaper today, you know, plus 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so, and C.S. Lewis, who's my favorite writer, has a, a, a quote, uh, I think he's talking about like morality or, or theology or something like that. And he says, well, people say you can't turn the clocks back, but like if the clock is too fast, you should set it back, right? <laughs> so so it's, it's about getting it right. And if other people have gotten it wrong or put a spin on it, like why? And so I, I see why conservatives, again, it's like, oh, the historians at Berkeley are rewriting, you know, our great nation's history. Well, it, they may get a revisionist can still be wrong. So revisionist doesn't mean it's right. It just means we're trying to get it right. Absolutely. And what's interesting too, is I think my subject was a revisionist historian to some extent. Payne certainly had a revisionist narrative when it came to things like monarchy and slavery and, and uh, education and finance, all sorts of things. So, yeah. So, um, why exactly you've written a few other things so you have a degree in history education and then you know were you a libertarian at that time did you from the beginning want to write some like how did you get into hey i'm actually gonna gonna write some history here yeah well my experiences was as a neocon in college <laughs> i was cheering on the iraq war it's embarrassing as hell I'm now recovered, but it was during my phase in college that I discovered my love for history. And really, I, I kind of gained it when it came to the American founding. Like I had heard a lot about kind of founding history and founding myths to some extent as a youth. But um, I really did a deep dive into some of the ratification debates and the Constitution and things like that. And I found out like a lot of what was being said about um, the Constitution, the founders in general, and their thoughts was just flat out wrong. And that kind of awakened within me like a you know a propensity to go down the rabbit hole on some of this stuff now you're right i've read i've wrote a lot about the american founding in general in various articles and my two other works um pertain to that to some extent but pain came to me as a subject that just hadn't been covered very well especially lately um mm -hmm. i've read basically all the prominent pain biographies now in the process of researching this and i think many of them get it wrong and most of the good ones haven't been um, kind of fresh in people's mind for several decades. So I just wanted to write the best narrative I could on pain, a guy that rocked the political establishments of France, Britain, and the United States without ever really being an elected official. He knew the power of the written word and the power of ideas to change the world. Yeah, he's uh, really amazing. And I, I went to college in the mid 90s. And I remember going through a Thomas Paine phase then for some reason, I have I have this vivid memory of sitting in the uh, our 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 university had all these tunnels under the university, and I remember like waiting between classes, sitting in this dark tunnel reading the Rights of Man. Uh, and so every time I was uh, editing your book, I had flashbacks to sitting in that dank tunnel 
Um, but you, you mentioned that um, it, it's funny how certain historical events and figures do kind of go in and out of fashion. You know, there will be one biography, then there'll be others, and then nothing for a while. So talk to us about what, um, before your book, what would have, what is out there about Thomas Paine, who, who's done a good job and who's done a bad job and why, uh, on either side of that. Yeah, I'll be happy to do that. This, I love this subject and I don't know, hopefully people can derive something out of this, but I think the best two biographies of him were written by a guy named John Keane. He's, his biography came out in the nineties, I believe. And um, Craig Nelson's pain biography is pretty good, too. The third, I would say, would be David Hawk Freeman's. Um, there's one other biography that's exceptionally good. It's kind of a laudatory account, if you ask me, but that was written by the abolitionist Moncure Conway in the mm -hmm. late 19th century. So it's kind of hard to read. So a lot has has been written that's good. Now, there are some hit pieces on pain. Pain was such a um, pariah in many circles and. You know, he had incredible enemies. One was a guy named James Cheathan, who wrote a uh, a just a total hit piece biography against him um, shortly after Payne's death. I think that came out in 1818 or something like that. And uh, Cheatham feuded with Payne during his life. Um, and many of the myths that we we have in our mind about Payne are straight from Cheatham's pen. So um, that's one thing that I'll say. Yeah. Did you ever read uh, uh, Chris Hitchens book on Tom Paine? Yeah. Christopher Hitchens wrote a biography on the rights of man and it does, it's, it's excellent. Um, you know, yeah. Hitchens is a guy that was very influenced by pain and free thinking and especially Paine's uh, beliefs on religion. So um, yeah, it's, it's excellent. That's a succinct read. Yeah. Chris Hitchens is one of those guys uh, that he, you know, he's a lefty on a lot of things, but he's like, a good lefty and I like a lot of his stuff. So uh, you should read that book and just a side note, but I just would love to see Christopher Hitchens alive today to respond to a lot of the stuff going on. Uh, that's another conversation. So um, talk about, uh, okay. So what would we have learned about Thomas Paine in, you know, high school civics class or, you know, American history one oh one in college uh, start there. And then uh maybe what you what questions you had starting from that point mm. i think what the common person will would know about pain if they know anything is that um he wrote common sense and he wrote the crisis so common sense was a succinct track that defended the idea of american independence that defended the idea of secession from the british government and the crisis was essentially a propaganda series to back the war in its most trying times um many people are probably well aware of this, but you know Washington's troops languished in Valley Forge in some of the hardest times in war. Coincided at the same time that uh, Thomas Paine was saying, you know, the sun never shined on a greater cause. Um, so you know, some of the most famous prose in, in English that have been written were written by Paine in some of the hardest uh, hardships of the war, and that's really where most people's, I think, general understanding of where Paine is. Um, that was, was basically the starting point for me. Like I had been, I had known that before I ever kind of picked up any research on pain, but you know, he had such, such a wide ranging, um, you know, experiences in so many different realms beyond that. I mean, his talents brought him to two other countries and influenced them. 
Um, but beyond that, Payne had dabbled as a privateer, essentially a, pri a, pri a pirate, sorry, um, an excise officer. So he collected taxes on behalf of the British government. He was also a brilliant engineer. He created, mm -hmm. he stood at the forefront of an engineering revolution when it came to iron bridge building and really dabbled in a bridge building career before he decided to return to politics. Um, you know, he, he was well um, known throughout the world. People loved and hate him. Very people had a moderate view of him. People either loved him or hated him. So I just found out all these interesting things about him beyond what's commonly known. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe some people don't know this, uh, but unlike a lot of the founding fathers, Thomas Paine actually wasn't born in America. Like a, a lot of, um, uh, you know, people like, you know, Jefferson and Washington, like their families were obviously fairly new uh, here. My, my family, in fact, the Harris name, they came over in Jamestown about 40 or 50 years after after the really couple hard winters where everybody died, then, then my people came over. Um, but, uh, but even still, like a lot of founding fathers were born here in, uh, you know, Virginia, Massachusetts, most of them we think about, but, but, but Thomas Paine wasn't. So he got his start. Tell us where. Yeah. Paine was born in a place called Thetford, England, very small town in the Eastern part of um, England. Um, he was born as a commoner, a very, kind of lower middle class background. His father was essentially a stay maker. So what that was, was he constructed the underbindings that provide structure for women's corsets. Um, some of Payne's political rivals would bring that out as a uh, way to kind of demean him throughout his life. Um, but Payne had no aristocratic background, no great rep reputation to speak of. There was really no reason to think that this guy would end up changing the world through ideas. He certainly wasn't in a financial position to do so. And um, he simply got there through merit and the power of his words to kind of transform what was kind of an aristocratic struggle into one that commoners could play a role in. Was he mostly self-made, self-educated uh, from those beginnings? Absolutely. He had a formal education in Thetford. Um, he was mostly raised as an apprentice intending to take over for his father's stay making business, which he dabbled in to some extent um, for a smart, small time. But in his youth, like I said, he was a privateer. So in a few different cases, he actually um, worked with private ship owners on ostensibly on behalf of an endorsement by the English government to loot the ships of the French during the, the Seven Years War, which we would know as the French and Indian War in our theater. Um, so it's, it's just so ironic because I, I write in the book that um, he basically pillaged the, the country he once helped, he later helped nurture, that being yeah. France. Um, so these were dangerous episodes. And one of the seven times I point out in my book where he escaped an early death was in a case where he just narrowly decided not to um, go on a voyage of the terrible, cap, uh, commanded by Captain William Death, yeah. the famous privateer. <laughs> you gotta love the names, right? Right famous privateer there's a very infamous episode where that ship was completely destroyed by a french frigate and i believe like 11 out of the 150 crew or something like that survived Payne's father had just been able to kind of convince him not to go on that adventure that's one of seven times he almost died early yeah there's another one we're going to talk about later that i didn't know about and i didn't really know about the the pirate the privateer thing either and i think that maybe another um maybe preconception that I, I don't know if it just, I put it together on my own or if I got it somewhere that 
that Payne was just like a, a, a writer. You know, he was just like this ink stained wretch uh, journalist type guy and he didn't get his hands dirty. And, but then, you know, what we know about his, uh, you know, his humble beginnings, uh, the fact that he educated himself as a, basically a scientist and engineer and was a, uh, uh, basically a pirate. And then he did carry arms in the revolutionary war. So even though kind of some of his, uh, uh, opponents reading those in the book, uh, kind of painted him as this sort of detached, uh, oh, he just likes to sit there and write. Like he, he was a man of action too. And I, and I, I, I didn't know so much of that. Absolutely. He dressed like a commoner, acted like a commoner. He was famous for writing in a commoner's language that was called vulgarity. It wouldn't be vulgar in the sense that it's like profane language, but he spoke in a way that was colloquial. It was a way that commoners connected with. And uh, one thing I'll say about him, too, is in his years as an excise collector, he lived in a place called Lewis for a while. And the first place we know of where we think he picked up kind of his ideological and philosophical beliefs was a place called the headstrong club there. And uh, you can still visit it today. It actually famously reopened um, in I think 1987 and the city celebrates his life and there's a few memorials, but that was a place where people congregated and talked about radical ideas. Um, uh, Lewis was a place that was known for its radical sensibilities ever since the English civil wars. Um, so that's it's interesting that he picked it up just kind of by chance, not through formal education. Um, but that was a place where, uh, you know, he started to feel at home with British radicalism. Mm-hmm. So what's he kind of uh, again, he's a man of the of the people and uh, uh, someone with a curious mind. He you know, newspapers were uh, common by then. He educates himself. Uh, in politics. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but like he, his first sort of foray into politics was like he, uh, on behalf of other tax collectors, basically he wrote like a pamphlet asking the government to like give them better, whatever. So give them better, you know, rates and uh, make their jobs better. But then, so he, he does this (laughs) and then something along the way, like, did he, uh, moved to America because of his political ideas? Did he just want a better opportunity and his political ideas kind of followed? So, so how, how do you get from being a tax collector in England to being a, uh, a pamphleteer in a secessionist movement, you know, three, three, three or 4,000 miles away? Yeah, it's, it's interesting question to ask. And there is some debate amongst the scholarship on this actually. Um, in regard to the the case of the excise officers, yeah, basically his fellow excise officers wanted to plead and petition Parliament for better working conditions. And I can just you know envision this in my head, like which one of you guys can write really well? Right, and this guy, <laughs> right. I guess this guy, and that's literally how Payne got his start. Now his petition fell on deaf ears, but I think that the there was two driving forces behind him ever going to the United States. Number one was that his first wife um, died early in childbirth, um, and both the wife and the child was lost. Payne decided to remarry, and for reasons we don't fully understand, um, he that second marriage ended in a separation to Elizabeth Olive in Thetford. Um, from them, it seemed like Payne was having a hard time finding his way in life until he picked up the pen. That's how I put it in the book. Um, when even though the petition to the excise officers fell on deaf ears, people realized this guy could write. Um, but the thing that 
I think most brought him to America was the fact that he networked in London well. So everything back then was about who you knew and uh, what who you could get recommendations from in terms of gaining employment. And there was no one in the entire world of any country that provided a better recommendation than Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) And for for reasons we're not totally clear on, we know that he met Franklin through other prominent figures in London that were kind of well-established and estimable figures. Um, Benjamin Franklin was taken by his wit and taken by his ingenuity and wrote a letter of recommendation for Payne um, under the uh, under Payne's desirability to leave for America. Now, Payne at one point in his youth had said he was always interested in colonial Virginia. Apparently, he had learned about that somehow in England, which is really kind of interesting. Um, but Payne decided to set sail there for a new life in 1774. I'm not really sure what Payne that Payne even had an atten- intention to be a writer. But that's shortly what he became once he landed there. He almost died on the voyage, by the way. I point that out too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. so coming coming over in 1774, there was already some uh, things were getting. Uh, when I, I'm not sure, like when you know, like Patrick Henry and Samuel Adams, like how early they started really speaking out. But so there wasn't, I don't think, too many, if any, calls for independence yet. But like it was, the crisis was already brewing. So he arrives in philadelphia um at a like you know it's almost like out of a movie script it's like uh, the uh, absolute perfect time to arrive in that place it was a hotbed of radicalism too and you're right um both both uh, patrick henry and samuel adams were well known by that time both had played a role in what was called the stamp act crisis where um the colonies essentially embarked upon what became the first nullification campaign in the u.s where the Stamp Act was rejected and the colonial uh, governments started to actively obstruct the the law enforcement apparatus of the British government in trying to enforce this thing. Both of those two played a role in that. But even beyond that, um, the Townsend Acts, the Tea Act crisis, um, the incident of the tea, otherwise known as the Boston Tea Party, resulted in what was called the Intolerable Acts or the Coercive Acts, as if you would have asked a, a, a Brit. Um, so yeah, you're right. Payne got there at the exact right time to make some kind of impact on history, and he sure did. He became the editor of one of the most prominent um, Philadelphia um, newspapers called the Philadelphia Magazine, or the Pennsylvania Magazine, where he served as editor. And that's where he got his start, um, really using his discernment to propagate radical um, tracks. But it wasn't just that. He also uh, published works on science and and kind of even poetic stuff. But one of his most famous works, and this one, it's still debated whether he wrote this. I tend to think that he didn't. But a piece called African Slavery in America was essentially the first outright published condemnation of slavery in the United States. And it's not known whether or not Payne wrote this. Again, I tend to think he didn't. But either way, I write in the book, he exercised considerable discretion to have that published in a very contentious time like this would be like um, opposing democracy today it was a very fiery position to oppose uh, slavery to be an outright abolitionist yeah pennsylvania would have been like the one place i think where you could have got away with that because of the quaker influence Hmm. uh, maybe somewhere Hmm. farther east but um but yeah so even then like to actually put it in print and uh, and again, whether he wrote it or edited it or, and how much he did that, the fact that at that time, like whoever his patrons were, 
I mean, he was going to take the hit for that if they, if, you know, if, if heat was going to come, he was going to take some of it. So he, hmm. he gets credit for that uh, just based on uh, uh, having the courage to publish it. So he, um, so how, what's the timeline? And I should know this um, and I probably could figure it out if I thought about it, but so he, he gets here in 1774 and how soon is, is common sense the first uh, big, like, like, was he writing about the crisis, um, not, you know, not to refer to his later work, but was he referring to the, those hot button political issues before common sense? Uh, but if so, there wasn't much time in between there, just a year or so. Correct. He did write bits and pieces about it in kind of an indirect way. Like he would write what was considered kind of like some satirical works kind of um, that kind of poked fun at kind of the British authorities, but he did not dive into it deeply until common sense. Um, he began to write common sense at the end of 1775. Um, he was originally going to call it plain truth and uh, Benjamin Rush, a famous Patriot doctor convinced him to call it common sense it was initially published in early 1776. And to give kind of viewers some context here, at that point, the battles at Lexington and Concord were not considered to um, be like the impetus to everyone of an actual war. Some people thought that this might go down as some odd, you know, rebellion against the British government that would be stopped in some way. And even beyond the time Common Sense was released in the summer of 17. Or I'm sorry, in the summer of 1775, people were pleading um, the Continental Congress, you know, settle things with Great Britain. They actually wrote what was called the Olive Branch Petition, which essentially said, hey, we don't we don't want, you know, a big fight here. Um, whereas at a similar time, Patrick Henry was down in Virginia stirring up um, dissent toward that idea and saying, you know, the fight's already here. The war's already begun and devoting colonial militia to it. But some people did not want to participate in this um some people wanted you know the crazy new england radicals to be isolated what what do we have to gain by fighting the greatest empire on earth but Payne said no that's our only solution at this point and even if parliament could give us representation logistics and um, logic would prohibit that from being feasible and not only that but monarchy was a form of slavery and it was established by a um a norman bastard uh, William the Conqueror, and it was an illegitimate regime founded in conquest. Yeah. So, so he, uh, common sense really is. Um, I think the there's a line in there that you know government is a is at best like a necessary evil or something like that. So like it, it's pretty, um, it, it's pretty libertarian, and there's a lot of uh, what we would recognize as kind of the libertarian take on the war. Um, he crystallizes it into a pretty pretty short work and 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 it obviously had an effect uh, i mean it, reading it today is is uh pretty inspiring but like back then it was like there there's probably never been a better timed uh piece of political writing absolutely and what what made it so popular and uh easy to digest was again it spoke to commoners this was not coded in legalese it did have a lot of historical references and logic-based references emotional references um but it was written in a way that was intended to connect with common folk that actually didn't follow politics that much they might have been following their entrepreneurial pursuits and how they were individually affected by british taxation 
but it, it actually wasn't British taxation it, it itself that drove Payne's ire. It was the fact that they had passed the Declaratory Act in 1766, which essentially replaced the Stamp Act. And what that said was, Parliament has the right to bind these colonies in all ways whatsoever. So what they were saying is that Parliament can legislate for all of the colonies, even if it gets into the internal matters that the, col the, the Patriot col colonials believed were reserved to them in their colonial legislatures. That is the autonomy that they had had for essentially 150 years up until that point where Britain didn't really even directly tax them until that, that time. Yeah, that's basically kind of the equivalent of like the supremacy clause as it started to be interpreted after the Civil War. It's like, oh, well, you thought it was this way. Now it's this way. And we can do and which has led to where we are today, where they can literally do whatever they want. Um, they could, you know, in Washington, pass a law that says what I can and can't do sitting in my office. So so that I mean, I think that, you know, that uh, that is an emotional um, and logical thing for even a common person at that time to be like, wait, you know, how, how can they do this? And um, so like how, uh, and we talk about it in the book and I don't think there's any way to know, but like, this was like a huge, uh, it sold tons and tons and tons of copies and made him famous almost overnight. Right. It, it, to it, it did. It made him totally famous. It did not make him rich though, because he had um, basically, uh, relinquished his copyright to the work. So first he intended to sell it for mittens and other clothing to give to the Continental Army as it was in the field. He intended that, that to be um, what the proceeds would go to. But eventually he relinquished his copyright to ensure maximum distribution. And because of this, lots of, of people printed their own copies of Common Sense. He got into a little bit of a, a, a dispute with his publisher over this, but ultimately um, the figures range of how many copies that he sold. I've seen figures all the way from 100,000 to 500,000. I don't I don't believe the 500,000 figure, um, but there's no doubt that it was in a lot of households. And it was so um, it wasn't just famous with the commoners that he intended to write it to, but prominent figures like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin and Charles Lee, the latter of which is not as well known, but he was back then, um, all gave it immense praise and say, hey, have you guys read this? Like they wrote this in their correspondence. Have you guys read court common sense? Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was wildly popular. Yeah. So um, I, I was just looking up on here to see if I could find like a early first edition of common sense and how much it, it's worth. And I can't, <laughs> I can't find one that uh, hasn't been sold. There's a few auction listings, but can you imagine that that would be all those books? Like you would probably trade all those books to have, have that one that, that, <laughs> Um, but so he, he becomes famous and, uh, far from kind of just hanging out in the office of the Pennsylvania magazine, he, he's, he, uh, the, he gets, he's already famous. And then he basically, uh, falls in with one of the most famous men in the world at that point. He did. And, uh, he put his livelihood where his, his pen was, he joined the continental army. He served as an aide de camp under Nathaniel green, very prominent, very talented general that kind of died early. So a lot of people don't know that much about him, but he was part of some of like the biggest disasters in the early parts of the war. Um, he was part of the Continental Army when Fort Lee was captured, when Fort Washington was captured. 
um, when uh, and the entire Continental Army under Washington was nearly captured on at the Battle of Long Island. So he played a role in those things as an armed soldier, but it eventually became known to his superiors that his talents really wasn't in the pen, but in propaganda. Right. So he was actually employed um, essentially to write on behalf of um, inspiring material that would cause people to support um, the war effort. And that is when the crisis started. The crisis was a series of essays. I believe there were eventually about 10 in total. I can't remember the exact number, but those were published all throughout the war. Um, eventually, Payne did kind of um, gain leave and spent a lot of the latter years of the war in Pennsylvania itself. He actually play, played at least a minor role in influencing um, the 1780 Manumission Act, one of the first Manumission Act in human history where um, Pennsylvania's legislature essentially set a date after which all slaves born would be free. This was the model used in several other states in the Northeast during this time. And it was another very radical idea that had never really been enacted in the West. And um, so he played role in various ways throughout the revolution. The last thing I'll say on this is at one point he was sent to France to extract um, financial support with a guy named John Lawrence. He, Lawrence eventually died during the war. But Payne himself, uh, our accounts say that it was really he that secured 2.5 um, million livres from France, a very significant sum to uh, allow the U.S. to continue the war effort, um, whereas others had failed to do that. But Payne made the acquaintance of the king over there. Yeah. So the crisis was another thing like it. it uh, I, I think of it in my mind, sometimes certain lines and ideas like I can't remember which one's in common sense and which one's in the crisis. I think, cause when I first read it, I had like a, one of those penguin volumes that had both of them, I think, but, but that was another thing that like, you know, the war wasn't going well. He wrote this thing as a, as a way to inspire people to continue to support it. And it, it just like common sense, it kind of, I, I wish that you and I could write stuff and everyone, <laughs> everyone would heed it uh, as, uh, as readily as uh, they did with uh, what Tom Paine did. But so like two for two, right. I mean, just, uh, uh, just amazing in what we owe to him for writing what he did when he did. It was just amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, he continued to write in the interwar period. Um, one of the famous things that I write about that isn't very well known is I call Payne America's first whistleblower, a proto Snowden of sorts, because during the war, a conflict arose within the ranks of the continental government called the Dean affair. Um, so a diplomat named Silas Dean went over to France and under a front company that had been established by the French merchant Beaumarchais, uh, France had essentially been doing its own lend-lease, per se, mm -hmm. to funnel arms and um, financial funding to the U.S. before it ever signed the treaties of alliance with the United States in 78, 1778. So what happened there was Dean actually engaged in some financial profiteering, and Payne blew the cover on this at great personal risk to himself because Dean had a lot of supporters in the Continental um, uh, Government. So what ended ha up happening is this conflict basically split those uh, the American aristocracy per se in two, because what they had said is pain, even though this is truth, you're compromising the war effort by kind of blowing the cover on what the French are doing. And it compromises our ability to work with the French in more uh, tangible ways in the future. So this uh, the different factions were split down, down the middle 
Um, <clears throat> supporters of Payne pleaded his case, saying he only served the, the taxpayer in, in a Republican virtuous fashion by revealing these things to the public, yeah. much like you know many of Snowden's fans say. But the other side said this compromised national security, yep. the opponents of Snowden. But for this, he lost his a job as the secretary for the Committee of Foreign Affairs. That great, um, it, it imperiled his own livelihood to do this. Yeah, I think that's a, another important point that, you know, I think that that kind of further, uh, you know, cast him in in uh, in the light of being, you know, maybe kind of a, a grubby commoner and all this stuff, because like, I think the the more aristocratic people kind of sided with Dean, if I, if I remember right. Absolutely. And, and so like the fact that, but what, what I think it marks him as, again, we already have evidence, but this is another thing where like he, uh, of, uh, of someone who always backed up what he said, uh, even at times, you know, most of us today, of course, times are changing. This may not be uh, the case for long, but like you and I basically can say what we want uh, and we maybe get kicked off of something, but we're not going to get completely socially ostracized. We're not going to get thrown in jail. We're not going to get tarred and feathered. Um, but he took stances like that all throughout his life. And this was one of them. But then uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, well, one area that I learned so much about in this book is uh, what Payne did in France, which I, I knew he went to France and I thought it was just the extent of like, Hey, the, the French radicals liked what he wrote and he went over there and they bought him drinks and he visited a couple <laughs> of times. And, and then he, and, and he, you know, hung out and wrote rights of man in a hotel room somewhere. And then that was it. Like I, I had no idea um, how extensive he got, um, uh, extensively he got wrapped up into the French revolution. So that, that part was just fascinating. Yeah. And he wasn't intending to do that. I think the reason that that got him to do that is because he saw what his former friend Edmund Burke had written about it in reflections on the revolution in France as most, as many viewers may know, Burke pro, uh, uh, published a tract. It was a lengthy response to someone that had inquired upon his opinion on the French revolution that had basically uh, condemned it. He basically said it threatened the stability of the English monarchy, not that all free people don't have the ability to replace their government, basically the contra-Lockean um, belief, and that if there was any generation who could bind all peoples for all time, it would be the first generation that established the monarchy. Um, and Paine took incredible issue with this. How could a man such as Burke, who had essentially supported the patriots in in some fashion in in the war at least he did everything to stop the war in parliament um you know abandoned liberty to the extent that Payne thought he did and Payne wrote that blockbuster the rights of man part one in in england actually in, in Inslington in london because he was so incensed by this that became a just an incredible hit as well but it, it actually raised the ire of the british government so when it came time for him to pen the second version, The Rights of Man Part Two, the English authorities could no longer ignore this. They actually sent agents to spy on him, um, kind of keep tabs of where he was and what he was doing, and eventually charge him with seditious libel. Yeah. Um, so actually, this is what convinced um, he got kind of tipped off to it by several friends, including the famous William Blake, by one account. 
Great um, poet. Yeah. Uh, I love Blake's drawings and stuff too. Uh, you should check yeah. him out. Uh, he's, he's great. So he, yeah, yeah I, I didn't know, I didn't know this part either, what you're about to tell, which was sedition at that time. Uh, that wasn't just like two weeks in jail. Right. I mean, <laughs> no, under the English common law, sedition was punishable by death and that's what they tried to give him. Now, the comical thing that I write in my book is um, before p- when Payne departed, right before he departed, he was in correspondence with several high-ranking figures in the law enforcement bureau of the uh, the Home Secretary in England. Um, and one of the most funny things I think that Payne ever did in his life is he had correspondence um, about how criminal their decision to persecute him for essentially espousing freedom of speech, that he ended his letter with a valediction. That's essentially like when you say, I'm your most uh, humble and obedient servant. Payne said, I am most certainly not, sir, your most humble and obedient servant. It was just such a funny quip, you know, right. the 18th century. So he left um, when he was in France in his first months in France. At the same time, the French government was trying Louis um, the 16th. Uh, basically, what happened was he was put on trial in London in absentia and sentenced to death. Yep. So if Payne ever would have gone back to London, he would have been killed because he was sentenced to execution, but he narrowly escaped. He was an absolute celebrity at this time in France. No one was more heroic than Thomas Paine that had written this hit, the biggest defense of the French Revolution that there ever was. So cogent, um, so uh, emotionally inspiring, and it made him a celebrity to the extent that he was chosen to be a delegate of the region of Calais in the Provisional French Republic. So he was basically an equivalent of a member of parliament or, or Congress, uh, uh, it, roughly, right? So- roughly. It was a provisional government that their scope of kind of power was supposed to be confined to essentially abolishing the monarchy and drawing up a new constitutional system in France. As part of that, Payne was put on the most important committee called the Girondin Constitutional Project, along with several friends, including Consordet and Brissot to drop a constitution for France, the, their first true Republican one, because they had tried to put in a constitutional monarchy. But uh, when <laughs> Louis XVI came under the ire of the revolutionaries and they abolished the monarchy, that was no longer the case. Now, that never came to fruition because the Jacobins in France took power. They succeeded in killing um, the king, putting him to death by execution, even though Payne and some of his friends pled for his life. Payne said our dispute is not with Louis XVI. Actually, Louis XVI relatively was a pretty good king, and he funded the American Revolution. But their problem was systematic, said Payne. It was the monarchy itself was the evil that they wanted to to fight. So why not set a good Republican example and kind of diverging from this tradition of violence that had swept through monarchies in Europe? Right, and that's actually one of the pretty moving parts in the book where he's – He's talking about, hey, not only is our our beef not with Louis the Sixteenth individually, that hey, we should set an example. Like one of the things we supposedly don't like about uh, the old regimes is the liberal use of the death penalty, mm-hmm. and so we we can set an example for the rest of the world. We can, you know, basically he can go live in Philadelphia or mm-hmm. you know Alexandria, Virginia, or something. And, uh, you know, he'll he'll have shame, but, you know, we'll have been the, be- the better people and set this great example. And then so he makes this argument at a time when the Jacobins were um, and, and the Jacobins are basically 
in some ways like take neocons and the woke mob and put them together <laughs> and you kind of you kind of get the jacobins like they're, they're oh man and they like tom that that put his life in danger too right mm. just the mere fact of saying we shouldn't murder this guy uh meant that pain was now suspect uh, among some people in the uh in the vanguard of the revolution absolutely and he had spoken against marat a famous kind of person in the Jacobin club um, as well. So this made him persona non grata to what would become the ascended power in France. Um, Payne didn't align purely with any of the factions in the French Revolution, but he was most aligned to the Girondins, a faction where um, Brissot and uh, Danton were notable leaders of. Um, so there was a few things that led to their downfall. One of them was a famous general named Dumouriez during the, the war actually basically became a traitor because some of the uh, legislative attendants that they sent out, the French government sent out to him, he basically seized, captured, turned them over to his their Austrian enemies and tried to convince his army to march on Paris and overthrow the revolutionary government. Now, he was a notable Girondin. So Robespierre and his crew said, these are the traitors and they need to yep. pay for this. Um, the, the Girondin constitution never came to be. The Jacobins created their own constitution, the constitution of 1793, which was never even put in motion because what happened there was they instead created an oligarchy, the committee of public safety that ba basically featured these oligarchic leaders, including Robespierre that invested themselves with judicial legislative and executive power, um, commenced the reign of terror, a famous streak of violence that jailed and executed many people that Payne eventually got caught up in. Yeah. And uh, we uh, maybe let's not go into too much detail because like there's some really cool uh, just again, like w I remember us talking a couple of times during the process of like, and maybe we should do it. Like somebody should write like a screen. This would make a great mini series, Tom Payne's life. It's <laughs> yeah, just, uh, it I truly mean, would. you got violence and uh, all kinds of uh, stuff. And, and there's some like, there's again, many close calls he's he's over there a lot um and um and again like it's weird like the fact that he was by that time like he was kind of on the level of like washington and franklin as far as being a, a world celebrity so like yeah. you know he he would get recognized like it was dangerous sometimes for him to go out because people knew what he looked like even though there were no uh photographs so like he that must have been just a very strange experience uh for him all around. And I think that that, that kind of did have an effect on the rest of his life mm -hmm. in, in a, uh, in mostly a not good way. Like I really think he carried the, um, the burden of that for a long time. Certainly. So, I mean, he, he grew to be, you know, at one point he seemed like he didn't have a care in the world that, that, you know, the English authorities were after him, but um, there was a time where his French citizenship was stripped and ostensibly because um you know, he had supported the amnesty toward the king. He was jailed in the French Revolution. Um, he narrowly escaped execution. I won't get into that. Maybe we will save that into the book. But yeah, I, I definitely think that it, it affected the way he lived the rest of his life. But I just have to say, man, I can't I can't imagine living that life um, with so many close calls to death in ways that, you know, he could have walked away from several times, I feel, but he never did. Yeah, he he almost had it, it, he he does remind a lot of his qualities uh remind me of a, of a lot of libertarians today um 
in the sense that sometimes we don't know when to shut up and that's some, <laughs> sometimes that's good, but like, it seems like he did have this compulsion to keep fighting for what he believed in. And even frankly, uh, we might want to get into this just a little bit, like some of his ideas uh, later on, especially we wouldn't necessarily consider them libertarian. Um, mm -hmm. But like he, he, what he believed in, like he couldn't just let it go. Like he wanted to do the iron bridge thing mm -hmm. and never quite panned out. Um, he, I think kind of wanted to do different things, but by that time, like he was, like he he kind of he did was secure enough in himself to be like hey this is who I am and I'm gonna I, I I can't do anything about it so sometimes he seemed to like that and sometimes not but like he yeah. he definitely like hey this is this is who I am and I'm I can't run from being someone who people want to know what I think about things and so I'm just gonna keep doing that he he reveled in it absolutely and it lost him many friends including Samuel Adams Benjamin yeah. Rush refused to see him. And his most famous schism was with the most popular person in America, George Washington. They had a famous rift after which they never spoke. And maybe we can save that for the book, too. But um, it came down to Payne believing that Washington had personally betrayed him while Washington was president. So yeah. I'll let readers read up about that. You're absolutely right. Some of Payne's beliefs were not conducive with what we would consider a modern libertarian. He was basically responsible for creating the the prototype for the welfare state in germ yeah <laughs> maybe people will be surprised to hear that but Payne was really the first person in the west to consider and conceive of a progressive income tax um funding for the poor funding um for um the the poor and the uh the elderly he actually yeah. proposed that there should be a land tax to fund a proto ubi scheme whereupon each individual should get an annual stipend from the government that is based on an assessment of cultivated land from landowners. So none of these things we would consider conducive with a, you know, anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because again, these were very radical ideas like them or not. And they're conceived of like a, almost a hundred years before Bismarck put the first welfare state into being. So, yeah. And to be fair to Payne on like the welfare state thing, as I think some of his stuff, he was kind of talking about England. And like in that case, like he's basically saying, you know, tax these guys who, you know, a, a lot of their upper class didn't earn it. And and basically were, were friends of the, you know, the Norman bastard uh, and his uh, his <laughs> descendants. And so some of his was kind of like what we would maybe call a just redistribution from you know, like what would happen if the if the federal government ceased to exist today, we'd have to split up all the, you know, divvy up all the all of its assets. So like but he did definitely go beyond what uh, even like a, a, a Milton Friedman or somebody would, uh, mm -hmm. I think. And um, so you're right. Like he and I always there's a couple things like that about Jefferson, too, that always kind of disappointed me. But like the the reasons why they were kind of doing it, I think, were somewhat uh, excusable. Um, and uh, yeah, with no hindsight behind him, it's easy yeah. for us to look back as libertarians now and condemn it. But, you know, Payne didn't base this on the assumption that we would have, you know, these endless debts with fiat currency cranking out tons of pork. And, you know, it would be based on this this fiat experiment experiment that he despised. He was a hard money warrior. So yep. I, point, I do point that out in my book, too. Yeah, that, that was great, too, that I didn't necessarily know um, his thoughts on that uh, at different times. I think early in his career with the uh, uh, 
both during and after the American Revolution, the issue of like states who had basically, you know, not worth a continental, you know, all this stuff, like Payne was surprisingly sound on that um, uh, from almost a Misesian perspective, right? Like he, 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 he yes. got it. Yeah. Throughout his life, he wrote about it several times, including a very famous work that if there's a work that he's not known for, I think libertarians should read its dissertations on government. That's an amazing book that really, you know, broadcasts his feeling toward fiat and his, you know, praise for hard money. But he also returned to that idea um, in condemning England, the decline of the English system in of finance. Um, this was something that had kind of assessed periodic wars and debt spending that the English government has had engaged in. And Payne actually said this is indicative of something that, you know, could end that government before, you know, any kind of war um, or usurpation would do so. It could be the financial collapse. Yeah. Um, as we kind of get toward the end of our, our, our time, I can go as long, you know, uh, we don't need to wrap it up right now, but I did want to get into uh, what really earned Payne a lot of uh, disapproval and hatred <laughs> even was his thoughts on uh, religion and, and things like that, which uh, I, I think, again, like, like with all of his writings, like he would write articles and then they'd come out as a, as a smaller book and then a bigger book. But what came to be known as the age of reason uh, was his thoughts on basically he was a deist. Right. And mm -hmm. so uh, explain what that, why he got into that and what, uh, why that made him. So he, he went from famous to being infamous and very controversial, <laughs> especially in America, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So he was raised a Quaker by his father. His mother was an Anglican, but he was raised a Quaker. But even by the 1780s, we have um, some evidence to substantiate that he was a, you know, dissenter when it came to traditional religion. We don't have the specifics, but he said he always wanted to write on it. Well, he did in the, the early 1790s. Um, while he was in France, he wrote the first Age of Reason. And the first Age of Reason was essentially a tract that said that um, he believed in a single creator, but that he didn't believe in institutionalized religion. And because of that, he thought that a lot of like the prophecies, um, kind of uh, some of the miraculous aspects of the Bible were patently untrue. He mockingly referred to like the story of the Immaculate Conception as, you know, an apparition uh, impregnating, um, you know, a virgin and just saying that it, it's all garbage. He thought, Payne thought that um, the creator's magnificence could be seen in nature. So he thought, you know, what we can see around us um, in the stars, et cetera, is evidence enough of the creator. And really the chief prerogative of every deist was just to do well to God's creation. So to treat people well, um, represent them well in government, and just be a good steward of the land. Now, yeah, this was very controversial for the time. Their deism had predated pain to some extent, but it was mostly confined to like enlightenment academic circles like Baruch Spinoza and Voltaire. And to some extent, David Hume wrote on this a little bit. But this was really the first tract that was kind of, again, written for the commoner. Um, it was written in the same vulgar language. It had very little effect in France. It kicked off a pamphleteer war in England, where, you know, about 50 tracts were written to try to refute it. And in America, it had some supporters, too. Although many people uh, at that point, America was very dominated by various Protestants. And it, the Second Great Awakening was taking place 
Um, a man named Elihu Palmer, Payne, once he returned to um, America in 1802, helped Elihu Palmer set up kind of a deistic society um, where there would be like just standard kind of sermons about nature and things like that. So um, it definitely raised indignation in many circles. There's a famous letter Samuel Adams sent to Payne saying, you know, what makes you think you can de-Christianize this nation? It's yeah. it's absurd, essentially. So I always uh, two of my, you know, I, I, just as we we're talking, I was thinking I would like to have a somehow a, you know, metaphysical time machine and have uh, C.S. Lewis and, and, and Thomas Paine debate. I would like to see them in a Soho forum debate. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be uh, amazing. And, and personality wise, they were so different. That would be just, uh, uh, that would be fascinating. Mm. I'm definitely with C.S. Lewis on, on all that stuff, but me too. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, that's the thing about Paine. Like, I don't get the sense that like some of the, you know, the, what do they call him? The, you know, the Richard Dawkins type and stuff like that. He wasn't like, well, a, he wasn't an atheist, but like, he wasn't, mm -hmm. he did kind of like, um, he, he did get, uh, you know, sort of, uh, rough and ready with some of his language about the Bible and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But I don't think he was like really trying to antagonize, mm -hmm. uh, he didn't like hate Christians. Like he was just like, Hey, there's a better way. And of course I think he's wrong, but like, I think he, like all of his other stuff, I, I really got the sense that he was sincere in what he believed and he stuck to that, um, to the end. I mean, he, he, he never really, uh, he never really wavered from that. Absolutely. I think it's, he was a very devout proponent of religious liberty in some ways, you know, more than many of his contemporaries. And he absolutely had no ill will toward you know, Christians himself. He actually had many friends that were Christians throughout his life. But you're right. Um, the ironic thing, too, is that the first age of reason was written as a reaction to the Jacobin kind of drive to be atheistic yep. <laughs> during the French Revolution. Um, you know, it was one of the most de-Christianizing efforts in human history where, you know, lots of religious per persecution happened, lots of torture against non-dissenting priests and things like that unfolded. Um, but you're right. He absolutely was. I look at him as kind of Ayn Rand. The two of them yep. both were proponents of religious liberty, but personally doubted it. They both thought it was a form of mysticism. Um, Payne actually wrote the Second Age of Reason partially when he was in Luxembourg prison during the French Revolution. And he had intended to write a third version, which was parts of that were eventually published, but not under the name Age of Reason Part 3. Um, if you want to read about that, read an essay on dream. It was really his last English um, publication whatsoever, but all of it made him a very, um, very contestable figure in many circles, especially after he returned to America. Yeah. Um, yeah. The stuff about the, that's another, uh, the, the stuff about him when he was in prison in France, that's a really a must read. Uh, uh, one of the many reasons you should get this book um, and again, it's just very cinematic almost that, uh, uh, kind of the, the arc his, his life took. And so he eventually, uh, I think he might have been an alcoholic from time to time that maybe, maybe not, but like mm -hmm. he, he did, I think, rely on alcohol. Some, I think some of his, um, it, you're, I you're, think it's you're, embellished you're, a little bit. Yeah. That, think, that was yeah. your take that sometimes people took that, uh, and maybe went farther than it really was. Mm -hmm. I do that. We are that is known that several times Payne was drunk, um, including in a quarrel with one of his publishers at one point. And 
Um, one of his friends kind of bailed him out from tough times when he was known to be drunk. But most of the accounts we have that he was like a rampant drunkard, drunk, drank daily to almost to his death, come from the pen of James Cheatham, one of his okay. chief opponents and some other people that didn't really know pain and were, you know, they were being paid to denigrate him. Right. And that's really one of the one of the things that I had somehow picked up from somewhere was that. Oh, that he was hated by all of his former uh, friends and died alone and drunk and stuff like that. But it, it wasn't quite like that. It, it wasn't necessarily a, a happy ending, but he um, uh, but it wasn't that bad either. He did have friends to the end who really I mean, they're the, again, some other moving parts of the book of how they actually took care of him. Uh, so it, his after he finally returned uh, from France, let, kind of talk about the the last chapter in his life there before I want you to do that. Then I want to, to get into a little more about how history has, has perceived him. Sure. Payne came back to the United States in 1802 after the ascension of the Jeffersonian Republicans in what was called the revolution of 1800. This is a time that federalists had been repudiated and nothing made Payne more optimistic about the future of the U S than that. Payne had thought the Federalists had basically driven the country into the dirt. He sided with the Jeffersonian Republicans on things like the um, the Jay Treaty, especially he thought was just condemnable because Payne still being something of a Francophile thought it was criminal that the U.S. as really the first beacon of Republicanism in the world at that point would get into bed with an English monarchy that he always, you know, despised. And even he clung to his last days in the hope that Napoleon, a guy he called the most complete charlatan that ever existed, would actually invade England and set up a republic. He, he, he longed for that. It never came to fruition. So after he came back, he basically lived in his property on New Rochelle, New York, which had been awarded to him following his services in the revolution by um, the colonial government of New York. And um, he basically tended to his, himself. He had various visitors from time to time. He was not, he, he lived in relative squalor, um, he still had wealth to his name, but that's another myth about pain is that he died so poor. Well, actually, he died to give a trust to the Bonavie children. So he had come over to the United States with the wife of Nicholas Bonavie, um, his friends that allowed him to stay with them in France. And he was able to give them, you know, generous trusts for their futures. And one of the Bonavie children became a general in the Civil War, which is interesting. But in the last few years of Payne's life, things were really tough. He could not care for himself. He was in bad health. Um, he nearly died from his ill health several times after even being released from France um, in the French Revolution and in the Reign of Terror. Um, his last few years, he bounced between various um, homes where he was cared for in New York City. And the last myth I'll speak to is that a lot of people say, you know, well, so few people attended his funeral. And that's true. I think there is only a handful of people that attended, including um, a few black people. But the, the thing about that is, is his funeral only transpired like one day after it occurred. And by that time, it, there wasn't enough time to disseminate word that this had happened. And, you know, I, I do think that many of his other friends would have came, including perhaps even Jefferson. Um, so... Yeah. And, and there's a, there's kind of a coda, which again, we'll leave to people who read the book about what happens after he dies. That's kind of sad <laughs> and funny at the same time. But so, so what, when, when did he die? And of course, 
Jefferson and Adams famously died 50 years to the day after July 4th, 1776. So they would have both still been alive. Um, who, who, uh, uh, when did he die and what did people like that say about him um, in print? Mm. He died in 1809 in the summer of 1809, and he was 72 years old, lived a very long life, especially considering he did have some health issues. Um, reactions to his death were mixed. Even when he came back to the U.S., some Federalists praised him like they, they wanted to get close to this man, this celebrity, that his name had been washed more or less from some of the pages of history, because at that point it had been, you know, 20 years since the continent had last seen him. But, you know, he had his fair share of detractors and supporters even after his death, and he still had it for essentially 100 years. Now, there's been it's been cyclical. His reputation has been revived and pushed into the dirt at some points. And I think we're in a point where it's basically been revived again, as I put in my conclusion, the readers can read it. But people of all political stripes have you know, assessed him very favorably. Um, he was cited in speeches, in famous speeches, inaugural addresses, both by um, Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan. And basically everyone claims ownership over pain in some way. And I can see why. There are things that libertarians would love about pain and they would hate about pain. Same thing with Democrats and Republicans. I, one thing that I will tell the viewers is no matter where you stand politically, I think there will be things that you absolutely love about this man and ab and things that you absolutely despise about him. Yeah, I, I, I can't bring myself to really despise him in anything. And I'm not <laughs> trying to like, uh, you know, maybe, you know, 19 year old libertarian me would say, oh, he's so horrible because he wanted public education or whatever. But like, uh, you know, I, I got the sense that he was sincere and because he was a fairly magnanimous person uh individually and I, I and i and at my age today like i certainly like overlook a lot of his you know philosophical impurities mm. just the based on the the sheer weight of the good the good stuff he did which is just yeah. amazing so like what he was um, red-pilled yeah yeah you're exactly <laughs> right like he was red-pilled on the monarchy on money uh, to some extent, uh, on what would have been the media for the time and on the woke stuff. Right. So like the, the, the stuff in France, like the, the stuff that went, took a, a good idea and, and went several steps beyond, like he mm -hmm. was, um, he, he was, yeah, he was always true to what he thought was, was right. And he was usually mostly, mostly right. So, uh, I, I just, I can't admire him more. Um, and so, I guess as far as, you know, talking about different people claiming him, like you said that like right after he died uh, fairly soon, there, there was a, basically a, a, a takedown biography uh, of him. Mm. What sorts of historians have tended to either what timeframes or what sort of historical mm. schools of thought have, have uh, praised him and which have either ignored him or denigrated him? Well, I'm not real certain about the disposition of most of his biographers, but the ones I do is Cheatham's hit piece in 1818 that just totally, uh, <laughs> it, it was just a total hatchet job on pain in so many ways. And it relied on a lot of secondhand accounts. It didn't use many primary sources, et cetera. But the other one is Moncure Conway, the late 19th century biographer. He was an avid abolitionist. Um, and, you know, Payne was celebrated as a laudatory figure, mostly because it seemed in the book, 
for his association with that, though, you know, it got into so many things more than that. But Payne really was an abolitionist in a time where there there just weren't many. Um, in the founding period, there were lots of people that thought slavery was wrong, but very few people thought that, you know, it could be just ameliorated immediately and just, you know, the institution could be eradicated. But Payne said that nothing less was was um, moral. Um, so, you know, in a time where it was like him and James Otis and a few other people, Henry Lawrence and, and some others, Franklin founded a anti-slave society in uh, Philadelphia that Payne became part of. There weren't very many people like that. Yeah, he was certainly ahead of his time on that, too. So um, before we get into, uh, you know, plugging the book and telling people, you know, where they can get it and uh, how to connect with you, um, this there may be some obvious answers here, but uh, uh, I think it it deserves to be talked about. Like what, um, uh, again, when you look at someone who, you know, bang for his buck, like more positive effect and just plain uh, effective when it comes to his political writing, what can libertarians take from pain, uh, not ideologically, but how to... Uh, to spread the ideology and to like, I, you and I also talked about like, what would it be like to see Thomas Paine on Twitter or Substack or something like that? But so like, what, what would his style have been and uh, what should libertarians uh, learn from his uh, techniques? Oh, he would be so good on Twitter, by the way. I, I think that he would be closest to Michael Malice of any other figure in history I can think of. Um, <laughs> he, he would be just incredible. But what we can take from him is that Payne understood more than anyone else of his time, the power of the written word and the power to transform society in ways that transcend politics. Um, Payne basically affected the world to such a monumental extent in, in non-political realms. I mean, many of his ideas had political manifestations in the end, but a lot of what he did changed the culture. It, it introduced a more liberty-leaning culture where people were more autonomous, more willing to uh, work and provide for themselves, irresponsible people that didn't you know, grovel to the state for trade privileges and mercantilism that had been so prevalent in his day. And I think that you can see this in a John Adams quote about Paine. And I love relaying this because John Adams was not a fan of Thomas Paine in general. But Paine admitted that no man in his era had imparted more influence um, than Paine. He said, call it then the age of Paine. And he said that begrudgingly. So, yeah, yeah he's uh, uh, he, that that is a mark of someone that, you know, because Adams was he wasn't the the type of guy to be effusively uh, <laughs> praising other people, especially those he disagreed with. So Payne was uh, a crack brain zealot for democracy. One of his opponents yeah. thought, and Adams agreed with that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I could talk to you forever on this, but like, I, I really do uh, think this is a, a really great book for libertarians to read and anybody who's a, uh, again, interested in American and, uh, again, I learned a lot about the French Revolution uh, uh, from the book uh, too, and it was interesting kind of seeing it through with Payne as the as the uh, avatar there. So, uh, re really good job. Um, how uh, how long of a book is it? Uh, what could people expect? Where can they get it? Uh, all all the plugs. I have the proof here, so including the index and the notes, it is 450 pages. And you did an amazing job editing it too. So I want you to get credit, Aaron, 
couldn't have asked for a better editor that really understood the subject matter so much better than I ever could have hoped for. But anyone can get the book at davidbenner.square.site. It's available for order there. I have paperback and hardcover. Um, it is also available on Amazon for Kindle. If you want to get the Kindle, I'm considering options for a voice read audio version. Um, don't have those in place yet, but I'm hopefully hopefully going to have those. Um, but I would love to, you to get it. Um, follow me on Twitter at Dave at dbenner83 that you can see here in the image. Um, would love to have you pick up the book. And uh, it really is the culmination of four years of hard work. And I wouldn't have written this book if I didn't think I could write the best biography on pain that exists. Yeah, I... I, I, I've only, I don't think I've ever read, other than the Hitchens book, I don't think I've read a full biography of him, but I've read parts and I've read a lot about that era. And like it, it, this truly is like, I'm not lying when I say this, like, and I'm not just because you're here. Like, if you didn't know, like, if you just pulled it off and read the book, you would think, oh, it's just like a full time historian wrote this book and he happens to be uh and, and it doesn't it also doesn't come across as um oh i'm a libertarian and here's why thomas Paine is awesome like there's uh, you, you uh go out of your way a couple times to say that a lot of different people can claim him so it's not a a libertarian hagiography of 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 thomas Paine that uh it, it really is a right down the line good good biography and I recommend it. Thanks for what you said about my efforts. Uh, and uh, why, why don't you just get Michael Malice to do the uh, audiobook, right? <laughs> well, that'd be great. And I'll just say, I, I'll send you some Bitcoin for that praise after the show. So uh, for saying <laughs> no, no, that. No, no, no. You don't have to do for, that. For lying like that. That was awesome. Aaron. No, I, I, I really, uh, <laughs> uh, there have been a couple of things that I've edited that I wouldn't say that about. So um, nobody, I don't think anybody, this audience would know, but, uh, hmm, you have edited a Horton book before. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I would. <laughs> that's definitely not what, I, that's not yeah. one of them. <laughs> no, it definitely does not apply to Scott Horton. Scott Horton talk about somebody who like, as far as facts, like, like I didn't like he, he knows <laughs> fact checking. He's like, his computer does that in his brain all by himself. Uh, yeah, no, no libertarian stuff has been bad. Uh, uh, so yeah, I, I'm blessed to have worked with two great libertarian authors, uh, uh, at least so far. Uh, and you're, you're, you're definitely the second person on that list behind Scott Horton. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like I would absolutely be the opening act and I would not think twice about it. So. Yeah, that's great. We'll have every, every links to all this up on the show notes page and, uh, wish you nothing but the best of luck with the book. Do you have a, a next project already lined up or? Uh, thanks, Aaron. So, uh, you know, I'm going to take a little bit of time to think about that. I have a 450 page manuscript that's a clause by clause breakdown of the Constitution that might be my magnum opus someday, but that I'm just going to take some time away, enjoy this, market it, talk to people about pain, answer questions and stuff like that before deciding on what to move on to. Because writing a biography, I really loved it. And I'd love to write another biography on a different figure, too. So we'll see. Yeah. The future's uh, up in the air. Great. Well, I'll, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, uh, I'm not going to read this a, a third time anytime soon, but I think every, <laughs> I'm everyone, not either. <laughs> a, everyone, everyone should read it at least uh, at least one time. So thanks for coming on, Dave. Thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate it, man. Keep up the good work. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Dave Benner for his time and wisdom uh, and for his service at uh, as the regional rep uh, for uh, the Southeast 
on the Libertarian National Committee. That's a tough job. It involves a lot of time and travel and expense. And uh, we appreciate his work um, uh, uh, doing that. Uh, you can find info about some of the links uh, to the things we talked about, as well as a link to buy uh, Dave's book at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 93. Thanks to my co-producer, Simon Kalpin. Thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And of course, thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com. And if you can, share, rate, review, subscribe to Decentralized Revolution on YouTube, Facebook, your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.